Hi, I'm Bill Nolting, and you're listening to Talk Rehab. I'm back with part two of my recent conversation with Mike Ballard, industry godfather and founder of National Seating and Mobility. Part one covered a lot of ground and left us with Mike just about to share his thoughts about the future of pediatric mobility. Let's get back into it. Well, does that mean that kids are in trouble? I think long-term, yes. I think long-term, yes. Uh, and that's from an ownership mentality. Mm-hmm. I've asked, I've asked, uh, you know, some of the ATPs that I know that I talk to once in a while, I've asked them, do you see that it's going downhill? And yes, it is for a lot of, for a number of reasons, but I think that's the primary driver. It's hugely reimbursed, uh, under reimbursed. They fought the competitive bidding and the accessories issue. Mm-hmm. They sold out custom manual where you have the most need for accessories that don't fit normal codes right. and stuff like that. They just sold it out. Mm-hmm. And so you had a, a further decrease in, in reimbursement to protect that which was in power. Now, 25 years ago, you couldn't buy power chairs as cheap as you can buy today. But that was one of the things when uh, the granny chairs started being, you know, a wheeler dealer. But the, the manufacturers did develop, and the growth of power did develop economies of scale that you're never going to really get in, in manual. In they've also, manual. They've also um, upped their technology to the point where young, young, young kids are now more capable of piloting a complex power chair. I saw some kids driving complex power chairs that I can't, I don't believe they could have done 10 years ago or 15 years ago or 20 years ago because technology has has come up. So now I have a product that I can put a kid in, a power product, where I couldn't before. But the thing with kids is that's why we called our company National Seating and Mobility. Mm-hmm. The seating and positioning is the most important thing. Right. They're going to be in that thing 14 hours a day. As uh, you remember John Bach? Sure. <laughs> I remember John Bach. He said, being in a wheelchair. John Box. Box. Yeah. He, he told me being in a wheelchair 14 hours a day is like driving your car a million miles at 60 miles an hour. And he said, you, you got a stone in your shoe? You're going to want to cut your foot off. And that's why fit and finish and bounce and all that kind of thing is very important to the end user, particularly with kids who many do not have the ability to articulate what's causing them discomfort. They don't have the ability to do it. So that's why a very knowledgeable ATP is very important for kids, but it's just gravitating towards power. Well, we've got gravitating toward power. We've got a, we've got an aging ATP population What's the outlook for people that need mobility? Well, I think there's new blood coming in. Personally, there are too many ATPs in this country. Too many. When you've got too many dogs fighting over the same bone, it doesn't lead to a lot of good things. So I think there's plenty of ATPs. The distribution of who gets the business and stuff like that is different. But the way it used to work is cream rises to the top. You can't defy the law of gravity. So the best ones got the business because the therapists were the gatekeepers. Mm -hmm. Now, they didn't have any financial incentive to choose dealer A or ATP, you know, one ATP over another. Didn't cost them anything. So just like anything else, why wouldn't you get the best? Most people 
buy the very best that they can buy. Anything most people, whether you shop at Saks Fifth Avenue or you shop at Walmart, you buy the very best that you can afford. Mm -hmm. Well, they don't have to do that. They can ask if they thought Linda was the one, then they, they want Linda. And so that, to me, created a great environment. And then when NSM kind of up the game for a lot of people because we had good systems and everything else. We could communicate with therapists. Nobody had computer systems back then except us. Is a higher standard, and that drags everybody along if they want to compete, and, and, which is good. But if you're not doing uh, any volume as an ATP, then, you know, you're not very good. The therapists don't like you. So are you an optimist? Are you pessimistic about the future of rehab when it comes to what the outlook for people that need mobility? I am pessimistic because I think the track is on. It's getting so difficult for smaller firms or dealerships to make money. You know, the big boys have a purchasing edge in terms of margin and everything else. I'm pessimistic because... The big companies are under that are private equity owned now, and the, the new owners of these companies have paid incredible prices for it. So there's there's just pressure to grow, increase earnings, and increase earnings. Well, that's why you're seeing uh, more formularies, and you know you're seeing uh, here's the products you're gonna sell. Where I refuse to do that, I'd rather have people make the best choices and blend the altruistic aspects of what we want to do with the, the capital needs. You have to make money, but you have the top of the organizations pushing an agenda that is designed just to maximize profits. Now, yeah, there's, they do a lot of other good things, right? But I see just the forces of capitalism left unchecked will eventually hurt hurt the industry and, and eventually hurt outcomes. There's always going to be good people out there. Don't get, don't get me wrong, but I'm not real optimistic about it in terms of, I think the quality in the real custom, the really involved kids uh, is going to go downhill because there's not going to be that many people who learn, who learn it. The ones who have, you know, they're retiring and the new ones coming in aren't really picking it. Anyway. So who's fighting for those kids? I don't know. I don't, I don't know. It's such an esoteric argument that I think it's just going to take a whole new model, something more revolutionary again to, to change it. That's probably a few years out, you know, when some of these companies that get into, you know, when they get into trouble, I think it's going to manifest itself in, in reimbursement because I don't think the industry is really or has done recently a good job on reimbursement mm -hmm. and dealing with these issues and articulating them. And it really has to come from the top. You know, I've always said, unless the guy at the top hears a song in his heart, you'll inevitably fail. And I just don't think you can delegate uh, to just your government affairs guy, all the reimbursement issues. The other factor that I think is to be considered uh, and looked at which is, a, I think, a clear and present danger, potentially, and an opportunity at the same time, is 
the trend may be developed that Medicaid goes to block grants, mm-hmm. which Tennessee is considering. Mm-hmm. Right. But since we're our little corner of the world isn't even budget dust, the only comparable thing I know of is when Tennessee went to ten care in what ninety two. I think that's when NAFTA uh, passed. 92, 94, somewhere in there, they totally left out funding. I mean, they make, created these managed care companies, and they didn't do anything on, on CRT. They didn't even know what it was. And so every dealer that I know of stopped doing business and went out of business in Tennessee for a while till that problem was fixed. That's going to be one of the issues that the industry is going to face because if there's a domino effect of block grants, for Medicaid instead of the way it works now, which I happen to agree with is a better way of doing things. It'll certainly be more efficient if the whole thing's administered at a state level. It's one, you know, one level all already taken out that in a hurry when they make these changes that, that will get left at the wayside and it's 50 different places to, to have that fight. So the industry has really got to gear up for it. I don't think it's that difficult to solve it. I'm a big believer now in in uh, capitation. I was going to ask. I know one of the cool things NSM did was enter into that capitation agreement with Kaiser. Mm-hmm. Kind of all over the news, it was a big deal. Kaiser's happy. Everybody's happy. It's a happy thing. Consumers are happy. Everybody's happy. Why can't we capitate the world? You can. Okay, but the question is, who do you include? Who are the caregivers? Is that, for example, I don't know what Medicare is spending on. Uh, Group three wheelchairs and, you know, stuff like that. But I remember when they were spending like a billion two. And, you know, I did the arithmetic and I knew we could do it for 900 million. Sure. All right. Now, there's other things that have to go along with that. Okay. For example, I think anybody who needs a wheelchair has to go to a clinic. And that clinic ought to be authorized or credentialed. If you're going to get a 5000 10000 $15,000 item, it should be scrutinized properly. Put it in a clinic where we know there's no sleight of hand or anything else. Um, but now you just, you can't carve new motion out. NSM can't go to the federal government, make a deal, and they're going to just give it all to, to NSM. So there's things that have to be talked through. But in the right circumstances, properly managed, the Kaiser thing was worked well for everybody. Patients getting their equipment faster. Solved a lot of problems. Everybody's happy. Yeah. It's a lot of problems. It's reduced cost. It was reduced cost to our company because you didn't have all that billing and collection activity. Mm-hmm. It was a profitable account that they NSM was kept now I'm mean, over 20 years, but 20 years. Well, it was good for everybody. It was good for NSM and yeah. Kaiser because you we had did to, yeah, settle and up. We, and we had to, figure, had to figure things out. But the other thing, too, is... You know, the last time I did it, which was, gosh, 10 years ago, Mm -hmm. the average cost to the payer, Kaiser, versus commercial insurance was about 20% less. That's good news. Okay. So, you know, I think there's a deal, you know, where you can make a global deal, but I think there's a a deal that could be made where the ATPs could just just take care of the patient. Well, you remember I used to give speeches on that. You know, one day my dream was that you could say, okay, Linda or the team down here, you got $10 million to take care of South Texas. Take care of everybody. Just take care of them and do it right. And you, you put some governors in there so they don't go crazy. And, and, and that's what we did, you know, with, with Kaiser. And it's been a very efficient model. And I think it can be done all across the country. The question is, 
who gets dealt in and is able to play. This any willing provider ain't going to work. There's a lot of talk in a number of industries about value-based reimbursement. To me, it seems to make a lot of sense, but there aren't very many outcome measures or outcome studies for the wheelchair marketplace, for complex rehab technology, for even standard wheelchairs. What does that mean? Well, it's hard to have outcome measurements. It's such a small part of the aggregate healthcare costs. I figured out years back it was six one hundredths of one percent. It's not budget dust. Mm-hmm. In fact, you could get everybody a brand new piece of equipment every year and it wouldn't show up in the rounding. As a result, the industry doesn't have the money to do highly sophisticated outcome studies. Mm-hmm. You're not going to be able to do it and fund it for 10 years or 12 years or whatever. And then you're still dealing with the politicians you have to deal with. Again, when it comes to kids, I can't think of, and, you know, I grew up with my business career in Nashville, which was kind of the epicenter of proprietary health care. And I have a very, and still remain, have a very jaundiced view of some proprietary health care, because when you break these things down, they were all gimmicks, you know, patient brokering, if you will. Because Fort Fumble, you know, CMS is this bank, you know, with money oozing out, and we're going to figure out how we can get that money. That was not my approach. And, and what I liked, what, one of the things that really touched me about CRT is medical necessity, for the most part, our core customer, it wasn't an issue. You didn't kind of need a wheelchair. But also, to me, it was one of the highest impacts of life. You know, a lot of people's biggest fear where they don't want to end up is like as a vegetable that they're bedridden. They're just a brain in a, in a body bag that doesn't work. And so if you can't move from point A to point B, you don't have any life. So I, thought, I think it's the highest impact notionally. You know, it's common sense. It's just a very high impact. And our social mores want our people to have mobility. Because if, if you don't have mobility, technically you're human, but you can't have any kind of enriched life. It's not a money issue. It's the dynamics between suppliers, and they've never unified and gone in one direction. Is the human element going out of this? I mean, you have, you have two big companies that are struggling and fighting to get bigger and bigger and bigger. Mm-hmm. How are they going to grow, and are they going to squeeze out the human element of, of the whole proposition well, of what you just said i'm not no i don't think they will because it's in their best interest whether they believe it or not it's in their best interest not to do that but some people are coin operated their ownership groups certainly are mm-hmm. um, i mean and that doesn't make them bad people they just they're just looking to buy at this price and squeeze it and jack up the earnings as much as they can and, and sell, at a, sell at a higher price. That's what they're in the business to doing. There are very few companies who are in, interested in being in it for the long term, the ownership of the companies. Now, Permobile is an exception. Investor is a very long- For long life. Owner. Yeah. If these companies were owned by those kind of companies, I think you'd maybe see a different outcome, you know, taking the high road. But NSM, for example, has traded hands now one, two, three times in in seven years. Yeah. And the last two times, this last time, less than three years. Yeah. Right? So you're not going to have any long-term 
commitment. And that permeates to the executive level, too, because there's a lot of money involved that, that you know they can make. And money is very important to people, and it, it can tend to dominate. Where's the growth for these new owners that trade every three years? Buying all the little guys up if they can. So market share deal. They're trying to get more market share, and now they're they're going after Group Two business, and they're going, you know, they're starting to get aggressive because what has happened is NSM or New Motion is they've gotten large and stuff like that. The manufacturers' margins are going down, so it's in their best interest to enable new firms, the new companies, and go out them and train them, and they're more marketing oriented. They're not doing the clinics as much as they're going out calling on docs and everything else. and Sales model. Taking a sales model, right? And, and some of them are actually hiring rainmakers. You're just out there to tee them up and find these accounts and sell and then technically at least be legit in terms of regulations for an ATP involvement and stuff like that. It's going that, it's going that way. I don't particularly like it. doesn't make them bad people. Mm-hmm. Sure. They're doing what they have to do to put biscuits on the table or whatever, but... But the drivers are there. You know, I've always said, and I think it was a philosopher, Descartes, posited the question, how can one be free and yet be responsible? How can you be a free spirit and be responsible? And I think the question in capitalism today is how can one engage in capitalism and yet make the world a better place? And I, for one, said I don't think the deal is to go make a lot of money and then give to the United Way or something like that. I think you can combine the two, which I think we did a very good job of doing it. But when you get a certain size, it just, in a natural course of events, becomes all business. Just does. Well, if you were wheelchair czar, what would you do? Well, if I were wheelchair czar, number one, I'd create a true credential. A true credential. And that takes experience, maybe something, you know, that you have to have some kind of apprenticeship. You just can't pass an exam and go deal with patients tomorrow. I think it should be a credential that if the industry self-regulated, that can be pulled. I I can't remember the exact incident, but uh, there was a guy that uh, he was with us for a short time and he was just dishonest and doing dishonest stuff. I mean, unethical. And we went to Resna and say, hey, this guy's credential needs to be revoked pulled, mm-hmm. and everything else. And they didn't want to do anything about it because he'll just sue us and we don't have the money for a lawsuit. Wow. Okay, so, so we need to self-regulate. And that would get the government off, off everybody's back. So, yes, I want to, at the clinical level, I want a strong credential, a credential that can be pulled. Number two, I believe everybody should go to a clinic. And so you're going to have to certify wheelchair clinics that it's done a certain way. So now, so those chairs can be authorized instantly, instantly. You know, once the evaluation is done, you know, there's a few other things it can do. It would, would, you know, make it a true profession. And then the the employers, if I know that there's certain rules of the game you have to follow or you lose, you know, lose your ability to be in the game. It eliminates a lot of overhead and gives me a lot of certainty. And then let the best man, you know, the people who are doing it and getting the best outcomes, they'll, they'll get the business. Pretty simple. And, strong, and stronger dealer requirements by the dealers. As NSM and New Motion get bigger, you're sitting there, 
you want to sell to some, you got, you can't just have all your business dependent on two customers or one customer. So we, ha- you have to accommodate those things. I don't have all the answers. You have to discuss it with them, but there can be a way to make it a lot better than it is and increase the funding for custom manual. That's where my, one of my ideas is, well, we can go capitate the federal government. I can save them two or $300 million, but give me a hundred million dollars of that. And I can fix pediatric funding. All right. Well, with that, we've been at this for a while. Do you have anything, you have any closing remarks, have anything you want to share with everybody? Bet on black. Ten black. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Thanks, Mike. Bye. Bye. Well, that's all for now. Thanks for joining us for listening to Mike Ballard part two. If you haven't listened to part one, go back and listen to part one. It's pretty good stuff. And come back and listen for more Talk Rehab. I'm Bill Nolting. Bye.